Good afternoon. Um, welcome to Behind the Data. Uh, I'm Jez Clark, one of the co-founders of Eden Smith Group and currently operating as the CEO. And this is the season one of Behind the Data. Um, we're talking about building sustainable data teams. And I'm really excited because I have someone on today who I've known for a very long time, a good friend. Um, we've worked together in the past and I think he's going to have a lot of information to share, which I think all of you listeners are really, really going to enjoy. So a big welcome to you, Barry Green. How are you doing, mate? Hey, Jez. How are you? Good, good. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Um, now, Barry, you've been operating as a Chief Data Officer since about, I think, 2012. Um, you've worked on large-scale transformations for well over 15 years now for some very, very big companies, the likes of Citigroup, HSBC, Alliance, Bank of Ireland, consulting over at PwC. So you've got a wealth of experience in data analytics and obviously uh, financial services. And um, also not to forget, you are co-author of uh, Data Means Business, uh, an Amazon bestseller I hear. How's it going? Yeah, very good. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> need to, good. We need to give Jason Foster a plug there because co-author with Jace, but yeah. Yeah, we do indeed. <laughs> he's a good, he's a good friend and a good guy as well. Did you enjoy, did you enjoy writing the book? Yeah, it was kind of cathartic actually, because um, I think one of the difficulties that um, people who've been working in data for a while have is communicating their ideas to people in a way that's simple. Uh, and so the book really forced both of us to think about things which we just naturally thought. But actually, when we asked ourselves the questions, how would you put that down simply, it was really problematic. So it was really cathartic because you you actually really had to think about, you know, how you said something in a way that hopefully people would understand. Because the whole point of the book was to write um, about data in a non-data way for people who weren't involved in data, right? Because there's so many yeah. books on AI and analytics and CDOs and stuff. It was just like, you know, maybe there's a, there's a market for for people who just want to understand some the basics about data. Yeah, I, I think um, a lot of people overcomplicate the subject for one. Um, there's a lot of over-innovation of terminology, I think, in the space, which uh, which makes it even more complicated. So it's great that you did it. Um, I haven't actually read the whole book yet. I have started it. I'm just being completely honest, right? Rather, I'd rather be honest with you. Uh, but what I did read was was insightful. So yeah, no, I hope it goes well. I hope the book sales go well and, and fair play to you and Jason for writing it. Um, I think the, what we're going to do today is obviously we're talking about building sustainable data teams, but there'll be a few questions in here also uh, to help people get to know you. Um, and also I'm hoping, as with all of the podcasts that we've done so far, it helps the community in one way, shape or form, whether you're already in data uh, or you're looking for a career in data. So, I mean, let's kick it off. Like, how did you initially get into the data industry? Um, so I was at HSBC, I was running for the HR function, which was about seven, 8,000 people at that point. Um, wow. $700 million budget, I think we had. And so I was running finance, I was running um, reporting, I was running procurement and something else would lose me, but it was a pretty big role. And then someone came along and said, we're thinking about starting up uh, a CDO and we need a CDO for HR. I said, well... Let me let me try that. So I went to a few meetings and we basically between I think seven of us. So Lorraine Waters was another one in that group. We basically, you know, set up the initial HSBC CDO. Um, wow. So that so that was kind of how I officially got into it. But actually, I think I've been in it for a long into data a long time. Yeah, probably without knowing it. Right. 
yeah exactly yeah and that's what i kind of realized when we did the um when we did the the ceo thing at hsbc is like actually i know a lot about the subject i just didn't realize i knew a lot yeah and i think there's a lot of that going on in the industry per se there's a lot of people out there that are in roles that are very data focused but they don't actually know um which is what we're trying to 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 pull out because of the skill shortage that we have in the industry uh, across across the whole piece so where did i mean did you study anything particular um when you started your career well i did a finance degree extremely mm-hmm. so i did that while i was working and i did an executive mba um but none of that was really um data focused per se there was no specialist you know things about data reporting or any of that stuff you know if i if i look back geez the and i kind of look back just thinking the other day when did i really start so for me i was working as a business analyst in business banking so we wrote large loans for you know for companies and things and we were kind of like this prestigious part of the bank this is back in new zealand yeah um, and these were the days when you had typists, right? So you used to yeah. write your hand, write your letters out, and then you'd basically give them to the typist. And I'd, I'd like wait for four days because I was unimportant. And then I got to the point where I thought, this is this is crazy. I'm going to teach myself how to type, right? <laughs> and in those days, a man typing was not very manly to say the least, right? But for me, it was like, actually, if I can type my own letters, I can type them instead of handwriting them. And I don't have to give them to the typist. So I can just send them out. Yeah. And so then I bought a computer, so I took myself out of type, and then not long after that, I started creating models in Excel. Um, and I was basically doing my job in half the time, right, and and doing building models and then reusing them and doing stuff. And, and like, everyone was going, how the hell are you doing all that? And yeah. I was like, well, I'm, I'm using this thing here. It's called a computer. <laughs> uh, and, um, and that's when I think I really got into it because I realized how powerful it could be if you could automate things and you could reuse data and you could base, you know, you could you could create calculations effectively for like building big models, financial models, and then saying if this farmer does this or if this business does that, these are the results. And so it, it allowed you to do a lot of analysis really quickly. Start to get some kind of prediction of what you think is going to happen as yeah, well. Yeah. And, yeah. And, so, so that's where I really think I got into data. And then I was doing large change programs and, and you know, a lot of data is about actually convincing people and changing behaviour and efficiencies, for me anyway. Um, yeah. And so that's where it kind of started. So I don't want to tell you how many years, but a lot of years. If you, <laughs> a lot of years ago. Well, yeah, don't show your age too much because you're talking about typists. Um, was, I mean, was that was that 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 moment there? Was that like a pivotal moment in your career that's kind of kicked things off for you, or would you have said it was more the, you know, let's create the the chief data office for HSBC? Well, so yes, the HSBC one was pivotal because then I got the title of being a chief data officer. But if mm. I'm, but if, you know, I and I think that. Um, the big problem today is everyone wants to be the chief data officer tomorrow and they don't want to do the hard work, right? So mm. doing the typing, building the models, getting involved in change, all that stuff allowed me to build up a set of skills and capabilities that meant that I was changing jobs every 18 months. I, I got into, you know, I've done all sorts of jobs um, and you know, just about every area of the organ of, of banking and, and, you know, it allowed me to understand how things operated across the piece. Mm. And for me, as a CDO, you need to have that ability to communicate across the business, understand the business, communicate to the marketing guys, the finance guys, you know, everyone in every part of the business. Unless you've got experience, um, it's hard to, to do that without 
without any, you know, without any, even the formal training, I don't think gives you that stuff. No, I agree. I mean, experience, I think experience wins every time. I mean, I, I mean, you know, I, I hear from a lot of other people that I speak to that, you know, the communication across the business, um, it's almost like you're selling your you know your your what you're trying to achieve here which you know we don't want to be in that position but ultimately when it's something fairly new you have to it would you have said that that was one of the biggest obstacles of that journey or were there other things that you found equally as challenging or more challenging to get things moving no i think and it's not just the selling it's the communication of the message for the selling because i think you have so much you know people have had the experience or done things a few times you have this innate knowledge and it's really hard to not talk in a way um, that that so that other people understand. So I've always kind of tried to come up with really simple messages um, like data is the new black was one of the ones I originally. Did. I remember that. I remember that. <laughs> um, but it's about having three or four really simple messages and then communicating them over and over and over again and basically having telling everyone across the organization and you kind of know you're successful when you're in a meeting and someone starts using your catchphrase like it's theirs and you think ah, the message is finally getting through right but mm. you know you can't underestimate and I and I have to say I still struggle now in fact probably more so because my assumed knowledge is just getting more and more and I get more and more assumed knowledge I just think everyone must know this and actually it's just yeah. not the case so you've almost got to almost got to slap myself around and say right how do I communicate this to a five-year-old and and it's hard but but it's absolutely fundamental well the industry's moving super fast as well right so um you know we're, we're doing some work and are trying to build some kind of data curriculum because I'm I've constantly got my head on there that, you know, as things change, they move fast, there's new technologies and new skill requirements. Like, how do we get that into the curriculum really, really quickly so that it actually can have an impact when they start work? It kind of brings me on to, you know, talking about people because this this shows about, you know, building what we, and I said, um, not just about building data teams, but it's about building sustainable data teams, right? Ones that are going to last and ones that are going to work efficiently. Um, and, you know, we've got a lot of other things going on in industry at the moment with sustainability per se anyway, technology, how, you know, how we're managing that and, and the, the huge collection of data. Um, what's your approach to building data teams? Is it Do you follow a process? Do you follow a structure or an org design or anything like that, that you can share? So I think each organisation is different. So I, th I think you can have an idea of the archetypes that you might want. Mm. Um, but I think I think the the trick is to get the and this this sounds a bit 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 of a useless comment really, but the the truth is to really find a couple of really good people who who are specialists, but they understand more than just their specialist area. So, you know, data scientists understand, you know, understands the business at a high level or can do a bit of data engineering or a data engineer who knows a little bit about data quality. So, so build teams where people have got, you can give them different stuff initially, mm -hmm. right? Um, because I find, and, I've, and then I find also, you know, we talk about data people, if you like, but there's so much noise in the market with all these, you know, and the technology is moving so fast. For me, it's about looking for people who've got a natural curiosity. Yeah. It's about people who um, want to change and want to change things that don't work. 
uh, and it's also people who are analytical, right? So, I mean, you don't, you can't have a whole team of people like that, but but ideally when I'm starting, I want people like that um, because I can, I can allow them to pivot to different things. So it's interesting for them because those people are generally hungry to learn. Yeah. Um, and it means that, you know, I can kind of send five people off in five different directions and it, it allows me to get five, the five answers and make a recommendation so that as a team we can say, hmm, okay, they, those all seem to make sense, right, go away and execute them rather than trying to ha- work on that kind of model where everyone sits around and agrees on everything. I've never really been a big fan of that. I just think mm. break it up, give people responsibility, get them come back with a recommendation, let's make kick a recommendation around and then let's execute on that idea. So kind of almost accountability. Yeah. Has using that approach where you're looking for, you know, perhaps what I would call multiple skills or in effect, maybe you're looking for hybrid compared to what the market might have to offer, because I have this conversation all the time, pretty much on a daily basis. Um, Have you found it harder to recruit those people than if you'd gone for an architect, you know, a data architect and not really too much outside the box or a data engineer or data analyst? Has it been harder when you're trying to go hybrid a little bit? No, so to how you ask the questions, right? So I've got a que- I've got one question I tend to ask in all my interviews, which is sort of say, you know, so we're in a meeting and um, and basically someone asks a question and I've completely got the wrong end of the stick and I've made the, the biggest cock up, right? It's like bad, just answering it wrong. What are you going to do? And there's no right answer here, right? And I've had some interesting answers that I hadn't even thought of. But the whole point of the question is that whatever they say, they're prepared to front, either front up to me at some point or, or if they don't front up in the meeting, they do it in a way that doesn't make both of us look stupid. Right. Yeah, and it's like just asking questions like that or, you know, I've seen so many people calling themselves data engineers and I'm not a technical expert, but I ask them a few questions and it's like, oh, my God, you're still operating in like 1970. <laughs> um, so I think I think it's really about constructing what you want, constructing the right questions to ask people, and then effectively, hopefully, because it doesn't always work, right? You think you've got the right person, it doesn't work. But you know, eighty percent of the time, I'd say I've you know I've, I've got it right most of the time now, yeah. and it's just from kind of asking those right questions, and also telling people the truth, you know. So so here's what you'll see, and here's the truth, right? So this is a mess. This is a mess. We've got to fix this up. This is a mess. But, <laughs> but this is all the opportunities that it gives you, right? Uh, you know, yeah. As opposed to this is all, you know, it's all beautiful. And even even Greenfield stuff doesn't tend to be as as easy as everyone thinks, right? So. Uh. No, I don't. I don't. I don't think I ever hear of a story which is like you know roses straight away. It's always something's in a massive mess, or you. I I I. I uh, I hear of a lot of businesses that hire people into a role and then they just they actually they actually can't perform the role because things aren't in the right place or state for them. You know, the tech's not there or whatever it might be. Um, if you talk about talent strategy and it's interesting because what I like about um, your background is obviously you were supporting a massive HR function in HSBC. I don't know any other CDOs that have come from your background, um, as in that you were doing something um, on quite a large scale there. From a talent strategy perspective, what do you think is the most important component? For, for me, it's about allowing people to grow, so giving them the opportunity to learn so that they develop. But for me, it's also about um, making sure that I get people who want to take personal responsibility 
Um, and the reason I say that is because I think there's so much entitlement these days that if you don't have people who are prepared to put themselves out and, and you know, contribute to their own benefit, for their own benefit, I just think you can you can run into issues with how you you know if you have too many people like that your, your team structure doesn't work it breaks down so it's, it's it's not just it's really about making sure that I've got the right people with the right attitude as well as not just the, as their skills yeah so you so support you're... them but you allow them to kind of you expect them to kind of also develop themselves they're interested in doing stuff for themselves as well so a so a good career path framework coupled with some freedom to allow people to personally develop and you're looking for an attitude for people that want to also develop themselves personally as well and giving yep. them the environment to do so yeah and if you go back to my example right typing was not something that business analysts did or you know it was given to a typist so for all of those who don't know what a typist is it was basically <laughs> we had a tea lady in the, in the building as well at this point time um, <laughs> Uh, so, you know, you gave me your written, handwritten letter and they typed it out and they gave it back to you and you checked it and signed it and sent it out. And, and to me, I was, you know, I, I taught myself how to type. I taught myself how to use Excel. So every morning I would come in early, do half an hour on the computer, you know, and, and learn stuff. And after six to 12 months, not only could I type, but I was building models and doing all sorts of stuff that before I couldn't, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. None of that was – and if I'd asked – for formal training, none of that was even on the list. Yeah. So, it, you know, I think I think it's important for people to say, you know, what am I really interested in? And it may be that, you know, they start doing something that means they change change jobs and you lose them, but that's fine, right? Because then some, you know, it's you're trying to grow people and you can't expect people to stay with you forever. And, you know, so you, you've got to kind of give them that opportunity to really develop as well. That That's just, mm. that's just the way I think makes sense. And so, you know, what we're referring to right now is obviously people when they've already come on board with you and they're working in your team and all this sort of stuff and you're making the most of it. Because when I talk about talent strategy, it could be around internal mobility, it could be training, career path, it could be succession, it could be, you know, all the, all the all these sorts of things that, that make it up. But obviously there's the bit before that. And I'd like to hear your views on the onboarding process. So you've worked for a, a number of big businesses and none of those businesses, I imagine, are able to move fast. And as a recruiter, Eden Smith staffing, you know, you've got like the candidate or the job seeker experience. From an onboarding perspective, I think it's quite a critical stage. Um, what does it look like where you're at at the moment, for example? Is it, it would you say it's would you say it's a good onboarding process or where's the best you've seen? There you go, it's a different question. So I, I think from a talent strategy, the best thing I've seen is when I was at Allianz where we were looking at people on the spectrum and, and we were and we kind of had people come in and say, if you hire these people, you're gonna to have to manage them differently, you're gonna to have to, you know, you're gonna to have to give them this work in this way. And for me, that was really insightful because they would do work that I, no one else in my team would want to do, but they could probably do it 20 times better even if we did do it. Yeah. And it was about saying, actually, talent's not about hiring people who've got the same, you know, same skills as you or even are the same as you. That's where I kind of thought the whole cognitive diversity thing for me became kind of clicked in my head and was like, yeah, that's like really important. So building a team that's 
got different skills and 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 thinking about what skills you really need to bring into the team. And if it's really super skills, it doesn't have to necessarily be someone who's at university, for example. Yeah. So so I'm kind of really big into apprenticeships too. I think apprenticeships are the way forward. I think going to university, doing a data science degree, getting all that debt. If you're good at maths and you're social, then why not take a job on where you get some money and you start to see if that's really what you want to do. Uh, and it may be that the skills you, you develop there take you in a completely different direction. But for me, I think apprenticeships are a much smarter way of, and I say that because I didn't do my degree at a university, I did it extramurally. I just think it's a smarter way of learning. You get money, you don't ladle yourself with debt. You know, I just yeah. think it, it kind of makes sense. So so those are the two things I think. Um, you know, apprenticeships would be something that we something we also looked at, but also looking at different types of people that you could bring on board, not the standard. Yeah, I, I actually agree with you on the whole university thing at the moment. I think what's, what's um, when really apparent, you know, we run the internship program Nurture and you're seeing the cohort gets bigger and bigger each year. Um, but obviously they don't all get placed. You know, this is the thing. So there's more people coming through, but, you know, and they might be getting the qualification, but the, but those that actually do take on an apprenticeship or at least get work experience in an area which is uh, perhaps connected through career pathway into data science or something, I think um, is a is a is a better option. And of course, you know, debt is is awful for especially when you're young, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, it cripples you for years. Um, let's talk about uh, employee motivation uh, and retention, right? So talent strategy again. We talk about retention. In you've had some big teams. Um, have you ever experienced, you know, problems with retention? And if so, how did you combat that? Um, what have you done in the future to 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 basically keep good motivation and retention in your teams? So I don't know I'm the best person to answer that question because I've tended to be in an interim role. So I've uh-huh. tended to be in there for kind of two years. So I've tended right. to build the team, hopefully left them motivated and, and you know, running in the right direction. Um, and, but, but, you know, for me, it's all about that giving people responsibility um, uh, and kind of making sure that people demonstrate that they're worth doing something and they don't just get a role because they're next in line and those sorts of things. Yeah. And sometimes you lose people for that, but, you know, I think I've seen a lot of people think that they deserve a role and they focus on all their energy on the fact that they deserve the role rather than saying, actually, if I did this, I'd give myself a better skill set and then they would, you know, they would get, get, get the role as well. So, so I think that for me, it's all about that, giving people the ability to um, to take responsibility for stuff um, and then hopefully motivating them, you know, with, with interesting work yeah, um, and then supporting them. So even if something goes wrong, it's like you're the, that's your job to take the, the, the rubbish from either the people up top or other people in the organisation, right? Mm. Try and keep the flack away from them as much as possible you you literally have just said i was on a i was on a listen to a presentation last week from a guy that that uh, retention is, is 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 his topic right he's been doing it for 30 odd years and he speaks all around the world about it and funny that you said that you know you've been an interim and it's not the sort of thing that maybe you're the best person to ask but everything you just said is exactly what he said right it was around uh, people need to feel significant they need to feel like they're actually contributing they need to have a variety of work and they need to have love and connection with those around them and the business. 
those components apparently are what keep us all there um and it's a very simple way of looking at it but when you run something like a pulse server or something like that to see how the people are in your business actually uh it can be quite in you know, enlightening i would say um no, that's that's a great answer thank you um let's talk about diversity um i've heard a lot from different people uh who talk about the benefits of having a diverse team um what's your what's your view on that how what what is what does having a diverse team mean to you so i'm going to be controversial here right okay <laughs> careful we, <laughs> yeah i know uh, i'm just trying to think how i word this i think we I think we talk about diversity in a super narrow band. Yeah. And and for me, diversity is just about people who think differently and it's their life experiences and it may be um, their sex or their colour has an influence on that, but but that's not who, you know, for me, that's generally not, that's not everything to do with diversity. So for me, it's really about understanding someone and understanding how they think. Yeah, and yeah. that diversity is what I need. I don't need people, and I, and I've worked in, I've had so many people in my career who only wanted people that said, "You're amazing. Your ideas are amazing. You're a great boss." I don't mind people telling me I'm an idiot, as long as they explain why I'm an idiot. If I understand I'm an idiot, then I'll go away and fix that, right? Yeah. But 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 I think that, and I think that openness of ha having a team where you can have that open conversation. And that's pretty difficult, especially in today's environment. But I think that for me, that's diversity, right? Where you can, you know, you can voice your your own opinion, um, uh, and within closed doors, so that you know. But but also you can take it on board, and you can kind of learn from it. And other people can, you know, just because you're the boss doesn't mean to say you're always right. In fact, if you're doing it right, you should be learning from the people below you as well, as well as what you're giving back. So it's not just a one-way street. And, you know, you, you need people to go, hey, what about doing it this way? Because I don't have all the answers. No. But, you know, having having people who think a bit differently and challenging the way things work um, from their own experience, for me, that's diversity. I, I like the way you've summed that up, the narrow band. I think you're absolutely right. All people are talking about is ethnicity, you know, gender, you know, all that sort of stuff. They're actually not thinking why. Um, and it's the different ways of thinking that that all of us have, no matter where, you know, no matter who we are, background or anything like that, that is the bit that we're looking for in the teams. Um, so it's actually good to highlight it, I think, for the listeners in that respect. Um, if we talk about training and development of teams, some people do it, like, lots of people do it in different ways, right? Different mediums, they can do it through workshopping, they can do it through showing people, they can do it through tools and technology. Um, have you used anything specific uh, or regularly uh, throughout your career that you found the most effective? Uh, probably um, buddying up has been the most successful thing. Okay. Is, is, is just, you know, letting someone buddy up with someone who knows what they're doing. And again, you get that kind of diversity because sometimes I think not knowing stuff, you ask the, the right questions was there's that kind of assumed knowledge you don't necessarily. So I think buddying up is probably the most successful way of seeing things. It can be it can be a bit prohibitive because you're effectively taking out, you know, you, you're reducing the number of people you've got to be productive. But then that's just, you know, I've seen so many people go on training courses and do certificates and stuff, and they never yeah. use it. And it just kind of seems like actually it's a waste of you just wasted a whole lot of time. And I. I think with buddying, if you get the right combination, you can get really good little teams working together 
yeah. doing stuff. So for me, it's that kind of buddying up, I think, is, the, is what I'd say is the most successful. Do you always buddy with someone more experienced than you or you just buddy two people that are perhaps on a learning path together of the same kind of experience? It just depends. It depends on the team who we've got at times. So it could be both of those things you just described. Mm. You know, I, I often think we also try and come up with silver bullets for stuff too often, whereas actually, the, you know, it's, it's 99% grey. So it's just how how dark grey it is, <laughs> and you know you just you just need to think about you know what are my resource constraints, you know what are the what are what are the thing I'm really trying to fix, what's the best way of doing it? Mm. Yeah, no fair comment. Um, let's let's talk about a big topic, uh, and I know all the percentages, or I keep getting different percentages all the time about about business expectations and and people requests or job seeker requests, right? Let's talk about hybrid and remote working what's your view uh so i think i think hybrid working really makes a lot of sense so i mean i remember when when i was at hsbc i had someone on my team and she and she worked mondays and fridays and she was the only person on the team to work mondays and fridays and you know because she had kids and blah, but you know there were other people with children on the team and in the end i said no you can't work monday and friday because the policy was you generally worked, you know, and, and, I, and I didn't think it was right, but I also thought that you can't have one person on your team just working, Monday, you know, when you've got other people, I've got other people on my team who would like to work Mondays and Fridays. From home. And now it turns out you fast forward and now everyone's working Mondays and Fridays pretty much from home and, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and even then it's kind of one day really that everyone's in the office. But I think that one day in the office, I don't get that much work done, but I but I get a lot, I get, there's that communication and there's a whole lot of other benefits from that. Yeah. So I think if, if you're able to work at home, because I find working at home super productive. So do I. So when I was at Alliance, I was going two hours to the office and two hours home from the office, right? So yeah. four hours a day. So when COVID hit, I was like, whoa, I've got four hours. What am I going to do with that? And, you know, <laughs> I was able to basically be so much more productive. So I was working less, but being so much more productive. Yeah. And I also had more time for me and the family, right? So I think yeah. and, I, and I and I think that's what a little bit which is positive is that we're starting to realize that actually work life balance is important. We talked about it for a number of years as being important, but not really. Like it was kind of like talked about as being important, but you still have to work seventy hours a week and you know, you have to work on the weekends and mm. it was actually we all know that you can't work seventy hours every day. It's not productive. You don't think you know, you don't, you're just not productive, just period. So I think yeah. hybrid working really allows people to have a little bit more flexibility. And uh, as someone who has built teams, um, would you work for a business that said it was fully office based again? No, no, because I don't think I could hire people. I know lots of good people who, you know, work in different countries. Um, and, you know, if I wanted them on my team, which I would, I couldn't because they were working remotely, you know. Yeah. So, so before COVID, I was like, you can't run agile. You can't run agile remotely. Doesn't work. So is it is it as effective as if you're in the office every day? Probably not. But I also think if people are working in the right way, they can get a lot of work done, you know. And just you know, so so I think you know it's probably it's it's eighty five percent is yeah. good. Yeah. And sometimes if you've got the right people, it can be it can be. Is good, if not better. 
yeah and we've seen the explosion of tools and technology to help you do this stuff right um yeah. you know collaboration is now you know, it's, it's much much easier than it used to be um we're a fully remote business but we do get together so i do understand what you're saying about some of the things you miss you know some of those coffee chat conversations which you might think wasting your time and you're desperate to get back to that meeting but someone will just say something and it sparks something or a conversation takes a different um path just purely because you've got FaceTime and and the way that people communicate you can see their behavior because mm. you know what it's like when you get a message and you think well that's ranty but actually it's not <laughs> it's yeah. not someone's writing it with a smile on their face but it's not how it might be received I think there's been a lot of that going on in the past few years yeah absolutely I mean I had a couple of examples recently where people are having conversations behind me and I just turned around and said no that, you know that's a data thing so this is how it's going to be handled right this is not your area right this is how I think we need to handle it now tell me what you don't like about it and but you know they would have gone off and done a whole lot of work yeah and 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 actually they they weren't really um I don't want to be disingenuous but they weren't really well placed to make those decisions anyway mm. so you know if I, if I hadn't heard that conversation and butted in then they would have done that. Now they kind of like, okay, good. Barry will sort that out. So give it to Barry, and they can go away and do stuff that you know that's much more productive for for the whole team. Yeah, the first second comment that is, um, and I know exactly what you mean. The same thing happens to me um, every now and then when in in my business where something goes off, but it starts actually happening as well. Like, and been no yeah. no interaction. I'm like, whoa, whoa, calm down. Um, what's the biggest challenges you faced? in the data industry right so this could be it's a very broad question so i think the so, so i've kind of stopped networking a lot now because I'm, yeah i'm just sick and tired of the fact that we're not really doing anything that much that different than we were you know when we started so i remember when we first started it was super exciting and we were all and we share so that's good i still think there's a lot of sharing going on but I don't think we're challenging ourselves enough to really do things differently. Okay. Uh, and, you know, and there's so much noise around, you know, it's chat GDP at the moment and all the rest of it, but there's, there's always some flavor of the month coming out. Right. Yeah. And we're all, and we're all jumping on it. Like it's going to be the silver bullet and there is no silver bullet. And so I think for me, it's that the challenge is trying to, to, to make people see that actually we've got to be a little bit more honest with ourselves as data professionals mm. and stop jumping on the next shiny new thing and really sort of saying how do we how do we really change the way we do stuff with data because everyone still talks about data like it's it's amazing and it's going to change everything and it's, but actually there's very few really really good examples across the entire organization where that's happening it's, there's more and more examples where it's happening in smaller pockets and those pockets are getting bigger yeah but 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 I, I i still think we we're not hard enough on ourselves as data professionals that we're that we're really looking to do things a bit differently do you think people are being very honest about where they are and how mature they might be as a business or and a person i think uh i do think people share pretty openly when you know there's one-to-ones or you know there's a small group of people but generally no I think there's a lot of hype where people are overselling what they're doing, yeah. you know, and there's a lot of sticky plaster, these small mice running around wheels and stuff. And, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not, it's not the panacea that they're selling or, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a bit like someone was saying, um, it's marketing architecture as opposed to real architecture, you know, like the vendors will tell you they can do all this stuff. 
and then you get it in. It's like what I've got to do this, and it's got to, and you've got to basically yeah. turn your head to the left and look at look upwards to to make that work. Yeah. So, so I think there's a lot of that too from a vendor perspective as well. You know, they're they're overselling their capabilities. Yeah. Before they're really ready. Yeah, because I don't think they're any more advanced than anyone else, right? They haven't yeah. built the internal capability either because obviously, you know, trying to recruit people can be difficult, build their own teams to to deploy. And I also think that there is the challenge where businesses who are trying to build teams to answer these problems um, have to make it look more attractive than it actually is. Yeah. And that's hence why we get this, you know, we're doing great over here. But actually, when you lift the rug, it's might maybe not quite as uh, fancy as we originally thought. Um, yeah, I, I definitely have conversations like that quite a lot. Um, we're all talking about AI and ChatGPT and you know RPA and IoT and smart cities and everything else. You name it, right? It's definitely round the corner. We haven't got this bit right in data um, yet, and this is just going to bring a lot more data. Let's be honest. Um, what do you think the next big trend in the field which is really going to go bang uh, for me it's i've been saying this for years quantum computing so you know if we start to build up <clears throat> if we can start to build up and clean up our data and then you know with aoa improving the way it is hopefully for good right we're managing it and then you've got quantum computing over the top of that it's like boom you know, we might be able to work out how to fix some of the problems we've got around, bat you know, batteries being inefficient for electricity, for electrical cars and those sorts of things. Yeah. And you know, we might we might be able to really solve some problems that we just couldn't solve otherwise. Yeah. But I, but I, you know, I, I kind of I, I'm also a little bit scared that we're that we're you know a bit like the environment stuff. Everyone's talking about it like it's super important, and we can all see the impacts. But actually, no one's really doing anything, really. <laughs> it's a bit like AI, right? You kind of, you kind of think, wait a second, have we all forgotten about Cambridge Analytica and the yeah. and the real impacts of that that's had on the world? You know, it seems like that's just completely forgotten now, and we're all talking about ChatGPT, and it's just it's yeah. Just... And brings me to that back to that conversation we had over lunch about the um, Stephen Bartley podcast with Mo Ward from uh, X Google. Did you watch it? Yeah. Did you? What did you think? It's, like I said, it's it's quite scary, right? It really yeah. is quite scary. Um, I think so. But you know, I really think we can, if we do this right, we can we can really solve some big problems. Um, but but I I'm I'm not I'm not really that hopeful, if I'm honest. No, it's, it's a bit glim or a bit bit grim, but oh, don't think so. I think it's an honest, you know, appreciation of the situation, really. You always said you've always said it how it is, Barry. I've got to be honest with you. You know, all the time I've known you, I, I, you've always spoke very openly, which is brilliant. Um, so if you're looking at in in the field of data, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit now. So in three words, sum up what you think success looks like in our field. <laughs> Change with value. Nice. Surely that's a title for another book. Yeah, maybe that's uh maybe that's uh, another one of my catchphrases as well. <laughs> it could be. Um, what does success look like to you? What does it mean to you personally? Um, well, I would like to have done something where I contributed to to part of that change for value. Um, so it's, yeah, for me, it's about being able to leave uh, and and sort of have a career and look back and say. 
I made a diff not not a difference to a business, but I actually made a difference to you know the way we do stuff with data. Or you know I'm working with a couple of startups who've got some pretty good ideas, and and they're not they're not it's not all about making money. It's actually about influencing you know data for good type thing. So yeah. for me that 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 would be having done something in that direction would be would be um, success. Good, I love it. That's really really good. Um, thinking about all the listeners. Uh, I love this question. It's one of my favourites. Um, tell me one thing that you think our audience uh, will be surprised to learn about you. Surprised to learn about me. I was in a movie in the... So I left... I quit my job in the bank. Oh, wow. Uh, when I was like 21 or something. And I went to the US to become famous. So I was in a, I was in a TV movie and then I realised that the people in, in that industry were a bit were even more arrogant than me and actually like way so when I didn't want to work with them. So I went back to banking. <laughs> so it's almost like, it's almost like one end of the pendulum to the other. Um, that's amazing. Oh, God, no, I mean, I never knew that about you either, but that's, what, what was the movie about? Uh, it was a, it was a, it was one of those classic uh, TV movies, you know, with a good looking guy and, and the uh, girl and the rest of it. I was just in the scene where I was in a, um, in a dance, at a dance and stuff. I mean, I got asked to go back, to be honest. I got asked to go back Did and you? actually for a proper audition and a proper movie. And I was just like, nah, nah, <laughs> it's not what I want to do. Do you reckon Hollywood's looking for a chief data officer? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I could do a movie about a chief data officer. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. The rising chief data officer with Barry Green. So yeah. brilliant. Um, look, so so always always ask, uh, kind of uh, come to the end of the show now, Barry. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation so far, but um, always like to leave uh, some some kind of tip or something like that, right? Because I spend my life, you know, with people coming through um, our business into the network, people youngsters want to get into into the data world. What tips would you give the next generation uh, of potential data talent? So be curious. Uh, don't be afraid to learn, and by that I mean make mistakes. Um, uh, and and learn from everyone around you. Basically, like everyone you interact with has value. Someone will do something better than you. Look at what they can do better than you, and see how you can kind of take that on. Yeah, really good advice. That. Um, yeah, I love that. There's been some really, really nice key takeaways for me in this conversation. So we've come to the end of the show now. Unless you, unless you've got any uh, any questions, or you or anything else you wanted to say to the listeners? No, I think we've covered most of it, Jess. Yeah. Uh, well, look. I mean, thanks so much for taking the time out because I know you're super busy anyway. But um, I think the key takeaways that I've taken from this, if you're building teams, just build them up and build them with multiple skill sets. So do look for the hybrid where we can and so that you can get these people doing different things um, around talent strategy, concentrate on career path development and give people the freedom and framework to look at their own personal development. And I think that contributes to them feeling significant, contributing, and then your retention will be much better. Um, I know you talked about onboarding and look at people or looking at people when you was looking at uh, a little bit on the on the spectrum uh, and the requirement to manage those people differently. I think that's something that people in your position and others should be very aware of. Um, I love the buddy system. 
um something that i'm actually going to take away we've got kind of a bit of coaching going on at eden smith but um actually haven't got a buddy system it might be time for us to look at that so i'll take that uh on board and we can 900 pounds plus vat mate oh yeah no worries (laughs) (laughs) send me an invoice right um and i think we got a new barry green catchphrase so is it going to change with value or change for value change for value change no change for value change for value so i'll expect to see this um next best selling uh book on the on amazon uh next year yeah and uh for those listeners who are looking to get into the market and the data world tips for you from gary uh, be curious don't be afraid to learn make mistakes because that is where you learn obviously and learn from everyone around you so be open to have those conversations um barry thanks so much for joining uh, i've really really enjoyed the conversation as i always do when i see you anyway but uh, really appreciate your time thanks a lot no worries cheers cheers, cheers.